Uh, this is <clears throat> Saturday, May 2nd, 2020. And I'll be giving a Dharma talk about, well, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure. Um, this Dharma talk, just to put things in context, I'm mostly going to be reading from uh, Encouraging Words, uh, a book by uh, eight Robert Aitken Roshi, uh, the Zen teacher that that was um, his Dharma Center was in Hawaii. Uh, but as I was preparing for this talk, um, I decided to just mainly read from that book and treat uh, this Dharma talk as if uh, we were in a two-day session because <clears throat> uh, a staff member or two initiated uh, a request to do an all-day today, uh, which we're doing, as well as the bi-monthly all-day sittings that we're doing on Sunday. And when the residents uh, do sit on a, sun on a Friday night, it almost becomes like a two-day session. Uh, Roshi likes to call them a meditation intensive uh, because there is no sitting Saturday night. So I decided to treat this Dharma talk as if uh, we were in a two-day session and just read and comment from a book. But then as time went on, I realized that uh, there's, I just could not resist uh, talking about this article that I read, or it's an opinion piece uh, in the New York Times. And then the next thing you know, um, I'll mainly be talking about, uh, the theme of this talk will be about schedule, structure, discipline. And if I run out of that particular topic, the things that I have to say, then we'll just run into more passages from encouraging words. So it's mainly, like I said, reading from uh, encouraging words. But... I'm going to start with uh, this opinion piece that I've wanted to read about because I think it might be very helpful uh, for some of us or most of us in the Sangha uh, with regards to establishing a schedule uh, during uh, what many of us are calling the great pause uh, during this pandemic. Uh, most of us, if we're lucky enough, uh, are basically in isolation at home in quarantine. It's been at least six weeks now. And of course, one of the main struggles is uh, maintaining a, a daily routine. All right, well, here is the title of this New York Times opinion piece, which was on March 21st, 2020. And the title is, I spent a year in space and I have tips on isolation to share. Take it from someone who couldn't go outside. And it's by this astronaut, Scott Kelly, who was in the space station for, I think, almost a year. Um, and I remember hearing about him because he has a 10... The, one of the reasons he came up, he went up there, is because they wanted to um, do diagnostics and readings on with him and his body-mind as compared to his twin brother who was here on Earth. Um, <clears throat> and I was just really struck by uh, what he had to say about establishing a schedule and the things he did. So, um, because isolation can be extremely difficult uh, for a lot of us. 
So again, this is from March 21st, 2020. And he begins, uh, being stuck at home can be challenging. When I lived on the International Space Station for nearly a year, it wasn't easy. When I went to sleep, I was at work. When I woke up, I was still at work. Flying in space is probably the only job you absolutely cannot quit. Well, I also think of Sashin, a seven-day Sashin. But I learned some things during my time up there that I'd like to share because they are about to come in handy again as we all confine ourselves at home to help stop the spread of the coronavirus. Here are a few tips on living in isolation from someone who has been there. First, follow a schedule. On the space station, my time was scheduled tightly from the moment I woke up to when I went to sleep. Sometimes this involved a spacewalk that could last up to eight hours. Other times it involved a five minute task like checking on the experimental flowers I was growing in space. You will find maintaining a plan with, will help you and your family adjust to a different work and home life environment. When I returned to earth, I missed the structure it provided and found it hard to live without. Uh, I have to confess that was probably one of the biggest struggles for myself. Uh, once I had to leave uh, the Zen Center uh, to be home full time now with uh, my partner Cecily, we have a house not far from the Zen Center. Um, I just mentioned this because I just want to put a plug in for those Zoom sittings in the morning. It's, it really has helped me establish a daily, daily structure. If I, if I do, and I, I have for the most part been able to get up in the morning to sit uh, with everyone else, it's just such a great way to connect with the Sangha and it really gets my day going uh, on the right footing. So he says, follow schedule, but then he says, but pace yourself. When you're living and working in the same place for days on end, work can have a way of taking over everything if you let it. Living in space, I deliberately paced myself because I knew I was in it for the long haul. Just like we all are today, take, take time for fun activities. I met up with crewmates for movie nights, complete with snacks, and binge-watched all of Game of Thrones. Twice. Uh, but this is the most important thing he mentions here about pacing yourself. And don't forget to include in your schedule a, cons a consistent bedtime. NASA scientists closely study astronaut sleep when we are in space, and they have found that quality of sleep relates to cognition, mood, and interpersonal relations, all essential to getting through a mission in space or quarantine at home. This I have found has been so helpful. Um, I never realized how helpful it was until I was now in, been at home for like five weeks now, five or six weeks, is making sure I go to bed at an appropriate time. Uh, not appropriate time is not the right word. It's just the same time, more or less, within a half hour. Uh, this has really made a difference. Uh, it can make a difference in one's life if uh, they do, if one does go to bed um, at around the same time and get, get the right amount of sleep, 
Um, and again, this, is, this has been so helpful for many of us with these Zoom sittings in the morning. Uh, if one wants to do it, then one needs to get to bed at a certain time to be able to get up and, and do those sittings. Go outside. That's his third point. One of the things I missed most while living in space was being able to go outside and, and experience nature. After being confined to a small space for months, I actually started to crave nature. The color green, the smell of fresh dirt, and the feel of warm sun on my face. That flower experiment became more important to me than I could ever have imagined. My colleagues liked to play a recording of earth sounds, like birds and rustling trees, and even mosquitoes over and over, it brought me back to earth. Although occasionally I found myself swatting my ears at the mosquitoes. For an astronaut, going outside is a dangerous undertaking that requires days of preparation. So I appreciate that in our current predicament, I can step outside anytime I want for a walk or a hike. No space suit needed. Research has shown that spending time in nature is beneficial for our mental and physical health as is exercise. You don't need to work out two and a half hours a day as astronauts on the space station do, but getting moving once a day should be part of your quarantine schedule. Just stay away, at least six feet away from others. His fourth point is you need a hobby. When you are confined in a small space, you need an outlet that isn't work or maintaining your environment. Some people are surprised to learn I brought books with me to space. The quiet and absorption you can find in a physical book, one that doesn't ping you with notifications or tempt you to open a new tab, is priceless. Many small bookstores are currently offering curbside pickup or home delivery service which means you can support a local business while after cultivating some much needed unplugged time. All right, well, uh, in terms of a hobby, of course, our hobby, our main hobby is uh, doing Zazen and doing it on a daily basis. And I'll be talking a little more about that later on, uh, just uh, maybe one or two tips on how to make sure we do uh, maintain a daily practice if we can, if, if our circumstances allow, uh, which for many of us, I imagine we can. But at the same time, um, maybe now is the time to pick up a book, War and Peace, or some other big novel that uh, one has always wanted to get through, or listen to some music that one has always wanted to get through. Uh, anything related to arts or of interest of science of, of any form um, can be really helpful and nurturing from, from day to day. But again, this is all, um, this is all founded on our, our, the base, our foundation of doing Zazen every day. And everything else can, can enrich our lives out of that, out of that daily sitting, that daily practice. Another point he, another suggestion is keep a journal. NASA has been studying the effects of isolation on the humans for decades. And one surprising finding they have made is the value of keeping a journal. 
Throughout my year-long mission, I took the time to write about my experience almost every day. If you find yourself just chronicling the day's events, which under the circumstances might get repetitive, instead try describing what, are experiencing, what you are experiencing through your five senses, or write about memories. And if, even if you don't wind up writing a book based on your journal like I did, writing about four, your writing about your days will help put your experiences in perspective and let you look back later on what the, this unique time in history has meant. Okay, so I bring up this point because um, I have my myself. I have never been a person who writes uh, a diary. Never have, except the one time that I did was my time when I was in Japan for just under three months uh, while I was uh, training mostly at Sagenji. And for most of that time, I almost wrote on a daily basis just because it, I felt it would be um, worth reading later on. And even at the time, as I was writing, uh, that critical mind would kick in and... Uh, say, what the hell are you writing about? This is just kind of mundane, um, not worth writing about. And yet, I have reread some passages uh, from that, those diary excerpts uh, from my experience, which was, I think, 12 or 13 years ago. And lo and behold, uh, I really found them um, compelling and brought back memories and, and of that time and experience. Uh, so maybe writing a journal uh, during what many of us are calling or what I've read, what many are calling now, uh, the great pause uh, during this time of um, this era of being in a pandemic. <clears throat> Next is take time to connect. Even with all the responsibilities of serving as commander of a space base station, I never missed the chance to have a video conference within with family and friends. Scientists have found that isolation is damaging not only to our mental health, but to our physical health as well, especially our immune systems. Technology makes it easier than ever to keep in touch, so it's worth taking time to connect with someone every day it might actually help you fight, fight off viruses. Next, listen to experts. I've found that most problems aren't rocket science, but when they are rocket science, you should ask a rocket scientist. Living in space taught me a lot about the importance of trusting the evidence of people who knew more than I did about their subjects. Whether it was science, engineering, medicine, or the design of the incredibly complex space station that was keeping me alive. All right, well, um, preaching to the choir here, listen to experts. And then finally, his last point is, we are all connected. And again, this is uh, preaching to the choir. Uh, but I did find his, this passage moving, quite moving, so I will read it. Um, again, he says, we are all connected. Seen from space, the earth has no borders. The spread of the coronavirus is showing us that what we share is much more important than what keeps us apart, for better or for worse. All people are inescapably interconnected, and the more we can come together to solve our problems, the better off we will all be. 
One of the side effects of seeing Earth from this perspective of space, at least for me, is feeling more compassion for others. As helpless as we may feel stuck inside our homes, there are always things we can do. I've seen people reading to children via video conference, donating their time and dollars to charities online, and running errands for el elderly or immunocompromised neighbors. The benefits for the volunteer are just as great as for those helped. I've seen humans work together to prevail over some of the toughest challenges imaginable, and I know we can prevail over this one if we all do our part and work together as a team. Oh, and wash your hands, often. All right, uh, so now I'm gonna pick up uh, this book by Aitken Roshi. Uh, I think most people know uh, Robert Aitken Roshi. He was the uh, teacher in, at the Hawaii Zen Center. Uh, he is kind of a very close relative uh, to us in a way. Um, he, he was uh, sanctioned as a teacher by Yamada Cohen Roshi. Uh, but also he did practice and train uh, with uh, Yasutani Roshi, um, our own Dharma grandfather. So I'll start by reading, um, again, the book is Encouraging Words, and it's by Aitken Roshi, who I believe uh, died in 2007 at the age of uh, 91. I'm just going to start uh, with his introduction. Uh, this whole section of the book is called words from the uh, it's called words from the roshi and he says words from the roshi are little essays i composed for newsletters of the diamond sangha first at the maui zendo beginning about 1977 and then from 1984 onward at the koko on zendo in honolulu they were intended as pieces for particular times and places and in a serial collection they show changes in western zen buddhism and in my own views some reflect steps in our centers towards establishing a more cold code that is based upon clearly enunciated but relatively undeveloped principles found in the tradition others are concerned more generally with our task of establishing our religion in the west and in fulfilling our vow to save the many beings This excerpt, this passage is from 1982. Recently, an old timer came to me and complained that he no longer felt enthusiasm for the practice. I questioned him and learned that he was limiting his Zazen to his visits to the Zendo. I can understand how his enthusiasm might erode over a period of time when his Zazen is limited, limited to two sessions a week. It is not merely enthusiasm that erodes when practice declines. Your body and mind go out of tune. You are no longer a vessel of insight. The cardinal can sing. The wind can move the iron wood trees delicately. A child can ask a wise question. And where's your center? How can you respond? In 
It is time to put yourself back in tune, to be ready for experiences that make life fulfilling. Take up the advice for beginners. Put your Zazen pad somewhere between your bathroom and your kitchen. Sit down there in the morning after you use the bathroom and before you cook breakfast. You are sitting with everyone in the world. If you can sit only briefly, you will have at least settled your day. Yes, even even just five minutes of Zazen in the morning. Uh, just find a way, find a way to, um, to have the cushion amount at your disposal close by a reminder, uh, especially in the morning when one gets up. Um, Many people struggle, especially during vacation, to have a daily routine of Zazen. Uh, and I've always uh, learned from the experience of John, John Pauline, who mentions even in vacation, you know, even if you're tired and exhausted and just for five, ten minutes before going to bed to just sit for those five, ten minutes, uh, that will make a difference to keep the, the, the daily practice going. All right, much of this, what I'm trying to talk about is just establishing a daily routine, establishing habits. So how would, how do we do that? Uh, well, maybe one way is that just have perspective and realize that um, it can be a struggle, uh, but much like bad habits that we constantly might struggle with that do get easier to manage and, and to manage basically through a daily practice as in, uh, establishing good habits as well can really, really help. And I came across this, uh, I was kind of looking around a little bit on, on online to find some stories or quotes. And I came across uh, this little monologue this guy gave in an interview. His name is Tim Ferriss. And he wrote this book called Tribe of Mentor Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World. And basically, this Tim Ferriss, he has a podcast I didn't have time to listen to, but he basically interviewed and uh, a lot of people from various fields, uh, writers, directors, musicians, uh, people in the business world, uh, who from his perspective or from others have had a very kind of meaningful and successful life. And I guess he was really wondering how, what, what, what is different from those people who have had, um, s say, success, whether it be financial or, art or artistic, how does that differ from others? And this, what he had to say I, really struck me uh, in terms of establishing good habits for ourselves uh, with, with our daily practice of Zazen. So he's being interviewed and he's talking to... Um, and during the interview, he mentions this guy, I think his name was Jacko. I couldn't quite hear um, his full name, but uh, let's just call him Jacko. Um, he was a retired Navy SEAL commander, and, and this is what he had to say about this. Retired Navy SEAL commander, uh, he used to be in charge of all the West Coast training for the SEALs teams. Uh, highly decorated. Uh, whether Jacko is saying, whether Jacko is saying, quote, discipline equals freedom, or you look at some of the writers or musicians or directors or others in the book, across pretty much all of them, you find that they find, quote, freedom in constraints. 
Again, freedom and constraints. So what does that mean? Sounds kind of weird. Also sounds like an oxymoron, right? And what I mean by that is all of these people have routines. They have set recipes that they repeat on a daily and weekly basis so that they're not making a lot of extraneous decisions about mundane things. And they also recognize that we all have our lesser, our, we all have our lesser selves, our impulses. And then he digresses himself, this Tim Ferriss, a little bit. He says, I love chocolate croissants. If I left my entire schedule to whim, I would just eat chocolate croissants all day long. I love them. They're incredible. I still do have them once a week. I have my cheat day and I'm allowed to do what I want to, uh, where I'm allowed to do what I want. So I let my monkey mind and my lesser self just go nuts. Uh, but then he goes on to talking about uh, these successful people. But these people all have typically, and these are folks we might be inclined to think as superheroes, but the vast majorities might have one or two strengths. They might not even be the best in the world, but they have two strengths they combined in a really unique way, and they built habits around those strengths. And they have, and they have a thousand other weaknesses, but the habits and routines are what help them from going off the rails. And this should be really encouraging for all of us. I know these people from my book and from my podcast, they have tons, not everyone, but some of them have tons of neuroses, tons of horrible self-defeating habits. And the safety net they create are habits and routines. That's what Jacko means by, quote, discipline and freedom. So, of course, I think of training at a Zen center or uh, going to a two-day session or four-day or seven-day session or even doing an all-day. This, this, uh, this discipline, that discipline is freedom or uh, earlier on, as he said, freedom and constraints. Uh, if we don't have a choice, if we do make that commitment, uh, then and then we do follow through, then that's what can be really liberating uh, by having a, a structure, um, an established structure at home uh, with our practice. A uh, little more about this. Uh, going back to Aiken Roshi, uh, his last paragraph here is, uh, no advice, he begins, no advice is easier to give than this or harder to follow for me too. And this is this advice of having a daily practice. So again, I'll repeat, no advice is easier to give than this or harder to follow for me too. The day stretches forth before me invitingly. Surely I can cut my zazen without harm and get at the important stuff. One tiny decision leads to more tiny decisions and the path is neglected. A little more about this. Establishing that daily routine and, and feeling that those resistances and uh, being encouraging to hear about others who 
like ourselves do struggle with this. Uh, I'm reading this passage from this book that I hope to someday uh, read more of once I, I finish reading it. This is a book by uh, a Japanese novelist. Uh, his name is Haruki Murakami. Uh, and I think he's in his 70s now. Um, so he's a novelist, but he's also uh, been running most of his life. And he wrote this interesting book that's called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And he, and he says, no matter how much long distance running might suit me, of course there are days when I feel kind of lethargic and don't want to run, i.e. I don't want to do Zazen. Actually, it happens a lot. On days like that, I try to think of all kinds of plausible excuses to slouch it off. Once I interviewed the Olympic runner Toshihiko Seko, just after she retired from running, and became manager of the SNB company team. I asked him, does a runner at your level ever feel like you'd rather not run today, like you don't want to run and would rather just sleep in? He stared at me and then in a voice that made it abundantly clear how stupid he thought the question was, replied, of course, all the time. Now that I look back on it, I can see what a dumb question that was. I guess even back then I knew how dumb it was, but I suppose I wanted to hear the answer directly from someone of Seko's caliber. I wanted to know whether, despite being worlds apart in terms of strength, the amount we can exercise and motivation when we lace up our running shoes early in the morning, we feel exactly the same way. Actually reminds me of uh, uh, a personal trainer, uh, when I was doing a lot of weight training, uh, once told me that uh, in terms of having a, the discipline to, to go to the gym and work out, um, he said, half of the battle is tying your shoelaces. Seko's, this is this marathon runner, uh, Seko's reply at the time came as a great relief. In the final analysis, we're all the same, I thought. Okay, so back to encouraging words. This is from 1988. In the Diamond Sangha, we often repeat Yamada Kohen Roshi's dictum. The purpose of Zen is the perfection of character. This does not mean becoming another character, for that is not possible. It means nurturing your own qualities and making this fulfillment your life. Being authentic. That, that is basically what he's talking about. Uh, when we're doing Zazen year after year uh, and then even after decade after decade we, we, we uncover our own defilements the things we need to work with 
and not shy away from them, not just experience what we're experiencing and not reacting, just noticing. Noticing, it's that noticing and not necessarily responding, but noticing and noticing and going back to the practice. Noticing, going back to the practice, becoming aware of uh, the things we struggle with and just being okay with it. Just being, uh, all right, not necessarily um, be totally uh, passive about it or or shy away from it or try and suppress it, but just experiencing what we have, realizing that we're all in this together, that we're all working on our own uh, struggles that are not so different from other struggles that others have uh, and just being okay with that. One of my old classmates who became a colleague in the years when I was on the staff of the University of Hawaii used to complain about his dreams. Other people have inspired witty dreams, he would say. I'd just go to the store and see the merchandise laid out neatly in little compartments. My dreams are so boring, I must be a boring fellow. This, 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 I mean, what he's talking about basically is this, this, the dukkha of self and other, really the, the comparing mind that we all have, uh, constantly comparing ourselves, maybe not constantly, but comparing ourselves with others. She's enlightened, I'm not. He's more advanced than me, and I'm not. Fill in the blank. Aiken goes on. Well, he was never boring, though as one might expect, he was always highly organized. He has trained school counselors for more than 30 years and is highly regarded in his field. The inspiration is in the merchandise, and my old friend has many jewels in his offerings. I think he has probably acknowledged them by now in his modest way. This kind of acknowledgement can take a long time and in the process, self-doubts can be troublesome. If you can accept yourself as you are, then you can develop your merchandise, your offering for others to enjoy. I will be displayed in your own setting. More about giving. I'm skipping over a couple of paragraphs. During our childhood years, it is not at all clear that giving is a function of life. One of my earliest memories is a Christmas with my grandparents. I heard my grandmother say, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I didn't think that was right at all. It was obvious to me sitting there happily opening my presents that it was much more blessed to receive than to give. This is the natural childish mind. Now as an adult, I see my grandmother's point and accordingly, I would like to offer a modest correction to the Buddhist concept of inter in interdependence. It seems to me that interdependence implies that I receive from you and you receive from me. If it is a more blessed to give than to receive, then quote, inter-support would surely be a better term. 
I give to you and you give to me. This is eternal everyday harmony, eternal everyday practice. I think of this inter-support. Um, I think of Dokusan. Dokusan with one's teacher really, um, of course, of course, when one starts going to Dokusan uh, with Roshi, can have a lot of anxiety. Uh, but think of it this way, this kind of perspective uh, of this inter-support or this dependent co-arising. Uh, there cannot be a teacher without the student, just as there cannot be a student without a teacher. And entering into the Doksan room, um, see it as dependent co-arising. The other advice I always ask, especially for newcomers about going to Dukesan, is you don't need to have a question or something to say. Just go and see what happens. But of course, that's that's easier said than done. Still, giving and receiving are the same act from different directions. If it is hard for a child to understand giving, and if giving still takes practice for the adult, it is hard also to receive graciously. The term thank you in Japanese means literally, I have difficulty. Excerpt from 1979. Perfection is a noun describing an ultimate state a light on our path shining from highest ideals. When used in the phrase, the perfection of, it becomes an action, a becoming. Becoming is also an ultimate state, the best we can unfold at this time. The traditional way of perfection in the Zen school is through Zazen, Doksan, Teisho, and Sangha interaction. I do not, however, think that we should be limited to traditional ways to engage in, the, in this becoming. For example, in dealing with emotions, Theravada and Vajrayana teach us how to examine feelings directly to see that they are empty. Psychology handles feeling in a similar way. Sometimes by personal quirks of character, we get stale and discouraged following a single sectarian path. There is no need to be limited. I think that as Zen students, we can learn from other traditions without violating our own. I wish to encourage you to examine tools used by people outside Zen Buddhism with a view to their possible incorporations into your own practice. I think you should be open to all possible ways to fulfill your great vow. So here I do have to pause and um, disagree somewhat somewhat with uh, what what he is saying. Uh, it is really kind of not a good idea to necessarily, well, let's put it this way, religions, to not blend the different uh, religions. Uh, each religion or practice has its own tradition, its own wisdom, um, that if integrated into something else can really um, water it down, kind of like 
I don't know, adding water to wine. Uh, it's just not going to be as, um, it's just not going to be wine anymore. It's the same with our Zazen. Um, as long as we see Zazen as our foundation, the basis for everything, then yes, there are other things that uh, through our practice can actually help benefit our practice. I think in things in terms of uh, especially um, therapy, uh, psychoanalysis, uh, that can be extremely fruitful, extremely helpful for one's practice uh, to be more, become more emotionally integrated. It's another way of helping you, uh, it, it's another way of helping one realize um, some of the things that they need to work on. Because it's, it's again, it, it comes to, it comes down to noticing. Uh, if, if, if one has, if one is ready and one wants to do therapy or needs to do therapy, uh, if one has a good, good uh, therapist, uh, then a lot of great work can be done. Uh, but again, it comes back to having Zazen as the foundation, the foundation of our everyday life. And out of that, um, things like therapy can, can really help. I, I do imagine, and I know, maybe I'm talking from personal experience again, uh, therapy can be really hard. It can be a really difficult uh, thing, especially if one uh, has has a tendency to suppress one's emotions or j just as an example, um, it can be really difficult and having that daily practice of Zazen can really help uh, get us through that because um, it will pass. Uh, having this practice every day we start to really intuit that uh, everything is impermanent and everything will pass. So any kind of roadblocks or difficulty one has, either through therapy or through Zen practice or uh, some other difficult uh, life decision, um, it will pass. Little, little something about Sashin here. How to handle ourselves right after Sashin is a question all of us are in process of resolving. At some Zen centers, there is a big party and people get stoned one way or another. I think he's being metaphorical here with this being stoned. Maybe, maybe for exa example, uh, talking way too much after Sashin. I personally don't feel comfortable with this way of coming down. It is an empirical matter, however. What is best for your practice in the long run? In any case, I am sure that the first few days after Sashin are especially important. With the kind of socializing you find rewarding, you will also need plenty of rest, plenty of peace and quiet with lots of Zazen. Then the wonderful virtue of Sashin will have a chance to take root. Commonly, we hear that Zazen is a lifetime practice. We may suppose that this means we should do Zazen every day for the rest of our lives. But Zazen is also a matter of devotion to each task, and a lifetime is all of it contained in the single act of plumbing, plumping up a Zafu.
I have been asked, how should I maintain my practice now that the training period is over? My response to this question is no different from my answer to questions about practice during training periods. I do have a suggestion, however, you can read. In addition to daily, daily zazen and to mindful attention to work a day at work a day activities, books are very useful upaya. There are many good Zen Buddhist titles now. Follow your nose as you prowl in your bookstore. Pull down books and activate your sense of smell. You'll find the one or two that suit you at this time. Reading short selects, selections aloud every day is effective Dharma work. Right. Well, I think I'm just going to read this one last passage, uh, and then for this time, uh, just leave it at that. We're almost out of time, um, so I'll just finish with this passage about impermanence, uh, and it's from a 13th century Japanese memoir, and it reads, ceaselessly the river flows, and yet the water is never the same. While in the still pools, the shifting foam gathers and is gone, never staying for a moment. Even so is the human being and human habitation. Just one more paragraph here. I suggest that basically we are all of us conscious of the transitory nature of our life, of our lives. Time is passing and we are missing chances for fulfillment. When new responsibilities appear, we resist, feeling that we are not doing justice to our old ones. Surely all people, not only Zen students, feel this kind of pressure, but there is something unique about the present situation. We sense the transitory nature of our planet. People have faced their own deaths from the beginning of human existence, but never before have men and women had to acknowledge in their hearts that biological evolution as they know it could end. He's talking about global warming. All right, well, really, I have run out of things to say or read. Um, And so I'll stop now and we'll recite the four vows. <clears throat> 